Welcome to Trinity United Methodist Church in Duncanville, Texas. Today is Palm Sunday, but it's also Passion Sunday. So is this a day of celebration or just a prelude to tragedy? The answer to both is yes. Today is Palm Sunday, but it's also Passion Sunday. So is this a day of celebration or is it a prelude to tragedy? Yes. So stay tuned later as we explore both the passion, the palm and the passion. And our first scripture reading today comes from Matthew 21, 1 through 16. Listen now to the word of God. When they had come near Jerusalem and had reached Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village ahead of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, just say this, The Lord needs them, and he will send them immediately. This took place to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Look, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put their cloaks on them, and he sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of them and that followed were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in turmoil, asking, Who is this? The crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Then Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who were selling and buying in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he cured them. But when the chief priest and the scribes saw the amazing things that he did and heard the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they became angry and said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read? Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise for yourself. This is the word of God for the people of God. Sid was telling me earlier that my stole was really askew today, so I have to make sure I'm all right. Because today is Palm Sunday. Today we commemorate Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, how he rode a donkey through the gate of the city, how the people laid down their cloaks in the ground, they cut palm branches from the tree, and how the people shouted, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Today is also Passion Sunday. Today we commemorate Jesus' somber journey to the cross, 
how we, he was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, taken first to the house of Caiaphas and then to the governor Pontius Pilate, and how the people cried out, crucify him, crucify him. In the history of Christian worship, the Sunday before Easter has gone back and forth between emphasizing the triumphal entry into Jerusalem and emphasizing the road to the cross. Some feel as if the darkness of Lent needs the brief levity of Palm Sunday before delving into the melancholy of Holy Week and the crucifixion. Others are adamant that Lent is supposed to be melancholy and we'll have plenty of time to celebrate after Easter gets here. And there are others, and I count myself among them, who sense that it's important to balance the observance of both because this juxtaposition of the triumphal entry and the crucifixion teaches us something about the very precariousness of life. Our lives can turn on a dime from tranquil to crisis with no warning whatsoever. Thursday evening, a childhood friend of mine was suddenly killed when she was hit by an SUV. And I will share more of that when we get to our prayer time. But it has reminded me how life can change in a split second. All of us can think of times when our world change with all, in almost no time at all. Palm Passion Sunday reminds us that just as God was working in both the triumphal entry and the road to the cross, God is also present and working during all the seasons of our lives. So today's service might seem just a little schizophrenic, <laughs> but that may be appropriate for the times that we live in. It's important that we do not skip from the joyful entry to the joyful resurrection because something happens in between, something that made all the difference. But for now, let's take a look at the triumphal entry. As I've talked about before, what Jesus does here is basically street theater. He has this very well planned and choreographed. Jesus is making a point, both religiously and politically. You see, in the ancient world, a triumphant king would return from battle to his capital riding a great white stallion. As he entered the city, his people would cut tree branches as part of a royal victory procession and lay their cloaks on the road in a sign of submission to the king. And the king would then ride into the city on this great white stallion and make his way to the court, the seat of royal power. Jesus is following this pattern, but with some very significant changes. He's not returning from a military battle, but from a day-to-day -day working of his ministry where he battled disease and despair. And he's not riding a great white stallion, but a very humble donkey. And the parallels are not lost on the people either. They pick up their cues and they willingly play their part. They cut the branches, they lay down their cloaks, they join the procession, they call him son of David, a reference to Israel's greatest king, thereby affirming Jesus' royal lineage. And where does Jesus go from there? He goes straight to the temple, the seat of not political power, but of spiritual holy power. 
And he does this during the lead up to the Passover when Jerusalem was filled overflowing with pilgrims and religious and political tensions were ready to boil over at any moment. Jesus knew exactly what message he was sending. He was making a claim to power, but not like any power that the world would recognize, because this power came not through armies or from military might. This power held no political office. This power possessed no material wealth. The power Jesus brought was the power of love and mercy and grace. And of course, the powers that be oppose this. After a joyous procession scene, Jesus comes to the temple and he causes a scene of another sort. He turns the tables of the money, change, money changers over and has, has the children in a frenzy. The disapproval and opposition of the chief priest provides a somber foreshadowing of what's to come. In the Synoptic Gospels, uh, Michael read from Matthew, but also this is true in Mark and Luke as well. It is the very act of cleansing the temple that sets the course of events that leads to Jesus' arrest and execution. The seeds of the arrest and crucifixion are already sowed in Jesus' presumptive entry into Jerusalem and the overturning of the temple tables. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in turmoil, asking, who is this? The crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Amen. And now we are going to make that transition from Palm Sunday to Passion Sunday. Our second scripture reading today comes from Mark 14, 32 through 52. Listen now to the word of God. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took with him Peter and James and John and began to be distressed and agitated. And he said to them, I am deeply grieved, even to death. Remain here and keep awake. And going a little farther, he threw himself on the ground and prayed that, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. He said, Abba, Father, for you all things are possible. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I want, but what you want. He came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep awake one hour? Keep awake and pray that you may not come into the time of trial. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And once more he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to say to him. He came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Enough! The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up! Let us be going! See, my betrayer is at hand. Immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived, 
And with him there was a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief's priests, the scribes, and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. So when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and kissed him. Then they laid hands on him and arrested him. But one of those who stood near drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Have you, to them, have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as though I were a bandit? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not arrest me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. All of them deserted him and fled. A certain young man was following him, wearing nothing but a linen cloth. They caught hold of him, but he left the linen cloth and ran off naked. This is the word of God for the people of God. It was a glorious Palm Sunday morning at the little Goshen United Methodist Church in Piedmont, Alabama. They're rehearsing for the passion drama that would take place later during the worship service. As Pastor Kelly looked on, her four-year-old daughter, Hannah, watched as Jesus practiced carrying his cross down the center of the sanctuary. In wide-eyed amazement, Hannah turned to her mother and said, I want to be in the story. So during the Sunday school hour, Kelly made her daughter a little costume so she could play one of the crowd of Jerusalem. The service started and soon the passion play, portraying the last 48 hours of Jesus' earthly life, began. In the background, they could hear the thunder of an approaching storm. And as they got closer to the climax of the crucifixion, the thunder got louder. And it was almost as if God was providing the perfect soundtrack to underscore the tragedy of the scene. It was even unfolding just as it is recorded in the Gospel of Luke. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land. And that was when the F4 tornado hit the church. Within minutes, 20 church members lay dead. When Pastor Kelly opened her eyes, she saw a surreal scene as people in biblical costumes were either laying on the ground or stumbling around looking utterly dazed and confused. She herself had suffered a bad, head wound to the, a bad wound to the head. And looking over the man who had been playing Jesus, well, it was obvious that he was dead. Her first instincts were as a mother. And so she frantically searched for her daughter, Hannah, in the rubble. And when she found her, Hannah was unconscious. Kelly knew that there was nothing she could do for her right now. So she looked up at the ceiling, the missing ceiling, and prayed the most simple, most heartfelt prayer she'd ever prayed in her life. Help. She then went into pastor mode. As she comforted and she organized the survivors, made sure the ambulances were on their way and cooperated with the police, it was only after everyone else was safe and accounted for that she finally consented to go to the hospital herself. It was at the hospital that Kelly was informed that her daughter Hannah had been pronounced dead on the scene. Somehow Kelly already knew Hannah was dead the second that she saw her after the tornado hit. But she had pushed the thought from her mind because it was simply too horrible 
to contemplate in that moment. And she had a congregation she had to take care of. Now the reality of the destruction of her church and the death of her daughter came crashing down upon her. And it was her own parishioners that held her up as she collapsed to the floor. The next Sunday was Easter Sunday, and the congregation insisted that they hold the service. So they set up folding chairs in the parking lot, the only part of the church that was left unscathed after the tornado. And there they held their Sunday Easter service and celebrated the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Goshen United Methodist Church survives to this day in a new building. And Pastor Kelly and her husband went on to have two more daughters, though there's no way one child can ever be a substitute for a child that you've lost. But both husband and wife remain in ministry there in Alabama. The irony of such a tragedy occurring in a church on Palm Sunday is not lost to us. I think the irony of my childhood friend being hit by an SUV three days prior to Palm Sunday is not lost to us either. And we pray that such a cup of suffering will never come upon us. Sometimes the cup of suffering is one that we, like Jesus, can see in advance and we anticipate with dread. Other times the cup hits us out of nowhere with all the force of an F4 tornado or the speed of an SUV. Jesus prayed that his cup of suffering would be taken from him, but we know that it was not. As I said earlier, the last 48 hours of Jesus' earthly life is often referred to as the passion of Jesus Christ. The film that we're going to explore on our Holy Saturday retreat, in fact, is entitled The Passion of the Christ. The English word passion is defined as a powerful or over, even an overwhelming emotion or feeling. The English word comes from the Latin word, passion. In Latin, however, the word passion has a more specific meaning. It means to suffer or to endure. We all have our passions to endure, loss and illness and regret and death. And we suffer these passions in this Latin sense of the word because we have passions in the English sense of the word. In other words, we can suffer our passions so deeply because we feel our passions so strongly. The only kind of heart that is never broken is the heart that never loves. And the only way to keep our hearts new is to not use them. This is a wisdom that all of us know already. Its truth is obvious. But when the cup of suffering comes upon us, we need to be reminded of this truth over and over and over again. Jesus' cup comes after a long day, which is about to become a very long night. It was the first evening of Passover, and Jesus had just eaten the last meal that he'll ever have with his disciples, at least the last meal in this life. And this last supper was a Passover Seder meal. And during the Seder, Jesus taught his disciples a new sacrament that we now call Holy Communion. He also revealed that one of them would betray him that very night. 
After the supper, Jesus and his disciples went to a place on the Mount of Olives where there was an olive press or a Gethsemane there located within this, just across from the city of Jerusalem. And he asked his disciples to sit there while he prayed. And he then took his three closest friends, Peter, James, and John, a little further with him down the path. And to them he said, I am deeply grieved even to death. Remain here and keep awake. He then goes a little further on his own where the Gospel of Mark says, he threw himself on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. He said, Abba, Father, for you all things are possible. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I want, but what you want. Returning to Peter, James, and John, he finds them asleep, and Jesus pleads with them, keep awake and pray that you may not come into the time of trial. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, Jesus goes off to pray. Again, he comes back to his friends sleeping. For a third time, Jesus goes off to pray, and for a third time, he finds his friends asleep. Now, clearly feeling let down by his disciples, Jesus says, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. See, my betrayer is at hand. And at that, a crowd with swords and clubs appear. We're not exactly sure who's included in this crowd, but it probably primarily consisted of the temple police. Because the pagan Romans would have caused a riot if they had ever come into the inner courts of the temple, they had commissioned a Jewish police force to maintain order within the temple. And this police force then answered to the temple priests. One man who we do know was there was one of Jesus' disciples, Judas of Iscariot. And coming forward, he greeted his friend and teacher with a kiss. And this was now the police's simple, uh, sig- excuse me, signal to arrest Jesus. A melee ensued and the high priest's slave ear got cut off and sliced off, while the remaining disciples fled for their lives. And while they, since they initially tried to fight back, I've always been uh, interested in the fact that the disciples also did not get arrested that night. I find that hard to believe, but they didn't. We often refer to the place where Jesus prayed and was arrested as the Garden of Gethsemane. Yet it's only the Gospels of Matthew and Mark that specifically mention the name Gethsemane, which means wine press. Luke refers to the area in general by simply saying that they were on the Mount of Olives. It's the Gospel of John that refers neither to Gethsemane nor to the Mount of Olives. He simply says that it was in a garden. And so from these strings of information, we now refer to the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives. For John, however, when he tells us that Jesus was in a garden, he's communicating a theological idea and not necessarily trying to give us the exact location of where Jesus prayed that night. He wants us to make a connection with another very famous garden, the Garden of Eden, where our human forebears ate there from the forbidden tree. In both stories, the main protagonists face a moment of temptation and they must make a choice of how to respond. We know that Adam and Eve chose to give in to their temptation. And now we ask, what will Jesus do? 
This isn't the first time that Jesus has been tempted. He was tempted by Satan for 40 days in the wilderness right before he began his public ministry. He's been tempted by other human beings. It was to Simon Peter that he said his very famous words, get thee behind me, Satan. The temptation this now ever came from within himself. Because Jesus was fully human, he shared our desire to protect ourselves and to shield ourselves from pain and hardship. He shared the very same trepidation that we would experience if we thought that an excruciatingly painful death was right around the corner. Jesus had a choice. He had a choice to avoid the pain. He could have run away. He could have ordered his disciples to protect him. According to the Gospel of Matthew, he told those who were arresting him, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? When it became time to choose, Jesus chose to drink from the cup. It's kind of ironic then that the cup takes such a prominent place not only in the sacrament of Holy Communion, but also in the observance of the Passover Seder. Back in the book of Exodus, if you might recall, Passover celebrates how the angel of death passed over the houses of the Hebrew slaves, saving their firstborn of each household from death. Yet on this Passover night, it's God's only begotten son who will not be passed over, but instead will become himself the Passover lamb of God. Biblical scholar Amy Jill Levine, referring to the temptations of Jesus, wrote this. Jesus was tempted by Satan at the beginning of his mission to use his miraculous powers for his own benefit. Satan tells him to turn the stones into bread to ease his hunger. Jesus instead presents his body as bread for the world. Satan urges him to throw himself off the temple so that the angels would catch him. Jesus instead allows his body to be broken on the cross. Satan urges him to turn his worship from good to evil, to worship Satan himself rather than God. And Jesus refuses again, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. And it will end up being Jesus himself who will then become the object of the worship of his followers. Though Jesus desired to avoid the cup of suffering with every fiber of his being, he nevertheless prayed, Abba, Father, for you all things are possible. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I want, but what you want. And we too have a choice. We can work to avoid and deny the cup of suffering and attempt to bypass pain and heartbreak. But when we do this, we also refuse the cup of communion, the cup of love and community and joy and peace and wholeness, the cup of shalom, the cup of resurrection. In the end, it is the accepting of the cup that allows us to experience life at its fullest and to become all that God dreams for us. Because we know we can't run away from pain and heartache forever. It will eventually catch up with us and we will have missed the opportunity to grow in grace and to love with our whole hearts. Mark's gospel includes an intriguing detail that is missing from the other three gospels. 
A certain young man was following him wearing nothing but a linen cloth. They caught hold of him, but he left the linen cloth and ran off naked. What's that about? (laughs) Many scholars believe that John Mark, the author of the Gospel of Mark, has written himself into the story. And it could be a reference to a verse from the prophet Amos. Those who are stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, says the Lord. Perhaps John Mark wants us to see ourselves in the story. Because we feel scared and naked and vulnerable. We're tempted to desert and to run away. In a way, this is what the season of Lent is all about. Because Lent strips us down, leaving us spiritually naked. And makes us confront our fears and our failings. Lent then invites us to let go of whatever holds us back and accept then new life in Jesus Christ. The writer of Hebrews has this to say, and this is one of my favorite verses. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely. And let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the sake of the joy that was set before him endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. As little Hannah said before the storm on that Palm Sunday at the Goshen United Methodist Church, I want to be in the story. And Christ offers us the very same invitation So let's be the one in the story who refuses to flee. Let's be the one in the story who remains faithful. Let's be the one in the story who will witness the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen. And now, accept or receive this benediction. As the darkness descends, may we remain in the light. As Holy Week begins, may we be ready for resurrection. As you go from this place, rest in the love of grace of Christ Jesus, our Lord, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We hope today's service was a blessing to you. Join us every Sunday here on Facebook Live at 11 a.m. Next Sunday is Easter Sunday where we will celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You can always access our services through our website, tumcd.org, our Facebook page, and our podcast, Jane's Most Excellent Church Adventure. If you like what you're hearing, you can also support our ministry with your gift through our website, tumcd.org. God bless you in the week ahead, and we'll see you Sunday at Trinity United Methodist Church.